Some good news as it pertains to Brady Road as the Boyers Memorial has been found. We learned on Monday that the memorial the family had put up for their son who died in a car crash in 2019 near the landfill was gone. Turns out, well, you know what? We'll just wait to tell you who took it and are they going to get it back intact? We spoke to Winnipeg Crime Stoppers about Winnipeg police getting a cash injection for the catalytic converter program or Save Your Cat. The Winnipeg team on The Amazing Race Canada joined us, Ben and Anwar. And on the subject of The Amazing Race, we had lots of fun asking you about your scavenger hunts. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, who's back next week. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, July 11th, 7-11th podcast for the start. It is Mackling and McGarry, McNabb's off this week. A protest blockade remains in place at the entrance of the Brady Road landfill, despite the city giving an order to leave by noon yesterday. The blockade has been in place since Thursday in response to the Heather Stephenson government saying it would not back the search of another landfill near Winnipeg, where it's believed the remains of two Indigenous women are located. As Global's Marnie Blunt tells us, the family members say they will not back down flags flying high in the wind as protesters hold their ground outside the Brady Road landfill on Monday. A lot of uh, frustration here. I think that's what's the mood here today is a lot of frustration right now and um, disheartened. This as a city issued deadline to remove a blockade by noon on Monday passes by. This is just the beginning um, until they decide that they need to do the right thing. we're going we're gonna to be around. We're not going anywhere. The blockade went up Thursday in response to the Stephenson government saying it would not back a search of the Prairie Green landfill north of the city, where it's believed the remains of two Indigenous women, Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron, are located. The province citing safety risks to workers and no guarantees the remains would be found. It's our women that are in there and you would feel the same way if it was your daughters or your mother or your sister or someone that you loved or your wife or anyone. The day not coming without tension. This man dumping his garbage at the blockade in a heated moment with protesters. You're on your cord. You're on your cord, man. You're on your cord. Good. It follows another incident on the weekend where protesters clashed with a man shoveling dirt on top of a mural for murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls at the protest site. This is a prime example of the things that we're still having to fight for when it comes to our people, when it comes to our women. The city's CAO says it's unlikely officers will move in and they're hoping negotiation can end the blockade, but they're not ruling out asking for a court injunction. But family members of the missing and murdered women say they'll keep calling for answers and action. They talk about truth and reconciliation. They talk about wanting to bring forward those 231 calls to justice. But do you ever see anything get done? No. No. The answer is no. My mom utilized those resources, and where is she now? She's in the landfill. She's in the dump. The province says it's still waiting on Ottawa to complete its review of the feasibility study on the landfill search. And the family says they met with the federal Crown Indigenous Relations Minister over the May long weekend and are still waiting for answers, adding that their frustration and hurt only grows as time goes by. Marty Blunt, Global News. It's uh, difficult for me to disagree with anything that was said by those protesters. 
whether I agree with the action being taken, that's one thing. I think I agree with just about every single thing they say, especially when you talk about the idea of if that was one of your relatives, what would you be prepared to do? I'd be prepared to do exactly the same thing. One thing I'd add as well is the if I, I remember the blockade at the border last year from the the convoy. Um, I just blockades. I don't agree with them. But protesters from Brady Road Landfill also made an appearance at the Leaf and Assiniboine Park, where the nation's provincial leaders are gathered for the premier's conference. And you can read more on that and the blockade at cjob.com. Is Mackling and McGarry McNabb is off this week. In our next segment, we are going to tell you how you can win yourself tickets for the Bomber game on Thursday, July 20th at IG Field. And then after Global News at 7 o'clock, Greg, we are going to continue the discussion on Brady Road. That's right. Uh, MP for Winnipeg Centre, Leah Gazan, released a statement about the situation yesterday. She will join us after 7.05 to uh, vocalize those comments and exchange in some conversation with us. In the meantime, we are going to say hello to our next guest in a moment, but we also will tell you that at uh, 7.35, it is Breakfast with the Bombers. And at 7.05, by the way, we have a concert announcement to make, as well as tickets to give away for the rest of the week. And a reminder that at 9.35 as well, we will be joined by the Winnipeg team from the latest season of The Amazing Race Canada. Ben and Anwar, the show just started last week. The first leg of the race was in Winnipeg, and that was pretty cool to see. But one of our friends and regular contributors to this radio station over the years has written a book. It's called Developing Anti-Racist Cultural Competence. So let's get him on to learn more about it. Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman, psychologist with Clinic Psychology Manitoba, founder of Winnipeg Love. Good morning, Raymond. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, sir. So why don't you, we start by just getting you to expand on this title. What's the book about? Yeah, well, I, a couple of years ago, I was asked to write a book uh, by one of the editors of the APA Press. Um, and uh, basically it was about cultural competence. But the dilemma here is that often we tend to look at the world. Like when we think about cultural competence, we tend to look at it like we're looking into a fishbowl where we're learning about people like they're different and without realizing that we are also in the fishbowl and a part of the same community. And so I wrote a book about that and from the perspective of also being anti-racist. So I think, uh, and it's always great to speak with you, uh, friend. Um, I think we learn every day on this radio program that sharing our own experiences and hearing experiences of others is so cathartic it's very very uh it's very very healthy in my mind what did you learn while writing the book <laughs> these are big questions <laughs> First thing, what did i learn um i i think one of the biggest things that i picked up on in doing it's like it's interesting you know that we like even even with myself working in the area and specializing in the area there's always more to learn and what I learned, uh, particularly I see through our bias project, was that people tend to see people of color as foreign. Um, so even when people are well-meaning and kind and not wanting to be racist, the perception of people of color is that we're not local. And that really contributes to an inability to, to understand the world in a cross-cultural and anti-racist way. Um, 
And so what I've realized is that when we work to see ourselves as a part of the same community, when we redefine what community means, um, and we see our community as being intersectional and diverse, we make greater efforts to understand different viewpoints. And that what we need to be doing, um, both as individuals within a society, but also as a larger as a larger society as a whole, is working to redefine what Canada means, what what our local society means. And that means including different versus, uh, different viewpoints and intersecting identities. So when we first started speaking to you, Raymond, on this radio station, it was primarily about mental wellness issues and your capacity as a psychologist. But over time, our discussions have morphed uh, into both mental wellness, but advocacy into topics on racism and diversity. So from your perspective, as such an advocate, are you seeing change for the better? I think that I think the change that's happening is personal. So there are like I think individuals try hard, but I think when we want to make change as a society, we really need to be working like as a society. And so I look to leadership. I look to making structural and organizational change. And that's really kind of where a lot of my work has moved. So I do work in mental health as well, but but to me, this is a mental health issue. It is a public health issue because it impacts the well-being and the functioning um, of everybody, and not just people of color, but you know, people who are racialized and not racialized. When we don't have a better understanding of what different viewpoints are like, that is going to impact our well-being, and and it does impact the mental health of of everybody. So there is change. Um, but I think in order to make change better and faster, we need to be thinking from a structural and organizational level. Raymond, as we discuss the blockade at, at Brady Road, uh, you yeah. know, the, the conversation, obviously, this is this is an issue that's impacting the Indigenous community to a greater extent than than any other community. However, at the same time, this is something that is, uh, you know, strengthening uh, some relationships within certain communities, but it's it's also dividing us. Our text messages this morning are showing us this morning. How do how do we create that empathy or how do we let me how do we try and see these big stories, these big picture issues from from the quote unquote the other side? Yeah, that's it. that that's what this book is really all about. Um and as I said earlier, as I, I think we see people of color as foreign and not belonging. I mean, there was that, um, you know, there was that video of that man shoveling dirt onto the painting of the red dress. And, I mean, you hear in that voice. I, I'm sure he presents an extreme point of view, but you hear it. You hear in that kind of conversation that you know you're dealing with people who who sees indigenous people. I mean, there are first people as foreign as well too. I, I have a story of. Um, a friend of mine who's actually Muslim and indigenous, and uh, she walked out on the street in the hijab and somebody yelled out at her to go, go back to your country. And she was just floored, right? So I think there's this sense of of seeing people as not belonging and, and, a, and not having a greater sense of empathy for what people have gone through. And I think when we open our minds and our hearts to understanding what those experiences are like, it makes sense. Right. It makes sense what 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 the indigenous communities and I think all of us should be really asking for. Um, 
and we see a greater sense of unfairness. Uh, I'll be honest. I mean, as a person of color living in Canada, you really begin to internalize a lot of, I would say, like a white-centered point of view. And you kind of put yourself aside because that's what's normalized. And a lot of the stuff didn't always make sense to me. But the more you look at it, the more you're like, oh, my God, like what, what, what's going on? And you begin to unravel and see the way that we think in this society and you begin to understand. And many people of color themselves also like who are like immigrants to this country, people who are not immigrants to this country, but are not indigenous. We don't often get the indigenous point of view too. Like I know from many immigrant communities, they'll, they'll think, well, if we were able to make it, why can't they make it? And that really reflects like that internalized racism where in order for us as people of color or immigrants to get along, we need to be the good immigrant. We need to kind of work hard and do the things that we're supposed to be doing. And we don't really have a better understanding of what the Indigenous community has gone through. Once you have that understanding and you open your mind to it, it is mind-blowing and it's embarrassing. I mean, for, for, for us to be able to see that we've not had that greater sense of empathy. But that means including the Indigenous community as a part of our community. Because I think we work hard when we do that. And I'll give an example. So, you know, if somebody in our family were to come to us and say, you know, um, if they were coming out of the closet, if they were taking on a different lifestyle, if they became vegetarian, you know, because we see them as a part of who we are, we make efforts to go about and make those changes and and understand their, their point of view and make efforts to, for them to be included because we see them as a part of us. And so we do that. But when we don't see that, we don't make that effort. I'll give you an example right right between the three of us. You know, um, Brett made the effort of, uh, of learning how to pronounce my name. And it's because I think Brett and I have a sense of belonging with each other. And that made a huge difference. You know, he made the effort. He was really concerned. Even when I thought it was pronounced well, I know Brett kept going back to go, no, I, I can do this better. I can do this better. But it, but it comes from that sense of belonging. If we belong to the, sense, to the same community, we make those efforts to understand each other. And that's what's missing here is that we don't have that understanding that we're from the same community. Raymond, when will the book be available? It'll be available. Uh, it's, you know, it's publisher, so tentative. I, I'm expecting um, early, uh, probably January, maybe late this year. Exciting stuff, buddy. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, and congratulations. This is a great achievement for you, sir. Thanks for having me. Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman joining us live on 680 CJOB from Clinic Psychology Manitoba. The name of the book, once again, Developing Anti-Racist Cultural Competence, and it should be out in the coming months. Have you ever been on a scavenger hunt? Whether it was an organized scavenger hunt, like maybe a a party, or maybe it was something you did as a kid and cubs or scouts or whatever, or maybe it was a scavenger hunt of your own, like you're trying to find that difficult item for somebody as a gift, and you know it's out there, but you can't find it. Or maybe it's a scavenger hunt online. You're looking for information, like this, my my phone is glitching out, and I'm trying to figure it's, there's, one of those Samsung phones where it's got the always-on display, so even though the phone's not on, I can still see the time. Okay. And, it, and I can still see if I've got notifications. But I, I noticed last night it was 
flickering and it had this odd like greenish barfish hue to it. Uh-oh. So I've been trying for since last night to figure out how to fix it and it's driving me insane. So is it is it allegedly fixable or is it your Apparently. phone is on its last legs there. I better not be. It's not even a year old. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so I'm trying to just determine wh- how to fix that. But in the meantime, tell us your scavenger hunt story for a chance to win those bomber tickets. And uh, Ross Levitan in for Sarah McCarthy today. Why don't we start with you? All right, Brett. Well, if we're not counting me looking for my keys every time I'm trying to leave the house, that's probably <laughs> the, the hunt I do most often. So this is pretty unique. As a kid, every Easter morning, I'd go looking for little chocolate eggs around the house. I don't know if anyone else has done that before. Yeah, um, I, I, I have a couple times. <laughs> Just once or twice. <laughs> Scavenging for them uh, like months after yeah, Easter yeah, happens. You, you end up finding one in November. You're like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. Do you eat it? Of course. Yeah, that's Who right. Come on. That's a no-brainer. Who hides these candies? The bunny. <laughs> what? Goes and leaves you little treats. Yeah, no bounces around the house. Oh, okay. I wonder if there are bunnies still... in my backyard. They leave me all sorts of treats. <laughs> I got a rabbit. My red, you know, my little Reg. He leaves me little presents all the time. Yeah, just don't eat them. Uh, yeah, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> well, Poitras, what about you? Your scavenger hunt. Uh, listen, I've been like obsessed. I've been watching like these TikTok, YouTube videos about this like Japanese curry. And it's like basically like a stew. And it's like with potatoes, carrots, and like you can just basically put whatever. It's like a, one of those fridge cleaning things where you just like dump whatever you have left in the fridge. And I've been trying to find this thing forever. And I was like every time I was passing like an Asian grocery store or anything like this, I kept popping in. I could not find it. And finally, I was like just about to give up and I'd run around all over town because I was like, this was a mission I had to fulfill. And I, uh, I I found it at Walmart of all places, like the last place that I would have ever thought oh, to yeah? was in Walmart. Yeah. Um, golden, golden curry. It's so good. I made it. It was absolutely delicious. Oh, it was, so it was not only did you find it, but it was good. Oh, it's like a staple now. I would, I would eat that all the time now. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have it. Like I went and bought more. Did you find it in the the international section of the store? Well, let's not. I don't want to give it away. Okay. Yeah, he doesn't want was, people to find it. <laughs> it was, in the, find it was it. in the international section. You're right. Yeah, you're happy to find it, but you don't want anybody else to find I it. I don't want because I want it to be there when I'm looking for those it. Are, those are the best. <laughs> those are the best secrets. Forte, what about you? Uh, do you ever watch like the late night talk shows and they have people off the street and they're like. Where's this country? People have no idea. And it, it gets a little embarrassing. I'm always afraid of being one of those people. So a lot of the times I just sit on the couch, go into Google Earth, and I look up like famous monuments or countries. Like, like I didn't know where France actually was on the map up until I was like, where's the Eiffel Tower? You know, trying to find it. Or where's the Burj Khalifa? Where's Dubai? So that's when did, when did you just, how long ago did you find out where France is on a map? I would rather not uh, discuss that because... <laughs> It was like a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, you're a brave man admitting that, Forte. <laughs> wow. Okay. But good for you for taking it upon yourself to educate it's yourself. right next to Japan. That's where the curry came from. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> combining of cultures. And uh, Mackling, what about you? Well, you mentioned Cubs and Scouts when we were discussing this off air. That's, that's the one I can really remember doing myself back in the day, trying to identify... Uh, you already told me what it was already, the stuff that makes you itch. Poison ivy. Oh, yeah, poison ivy. I did really well at that scavenger hunt, and I stayed in Cubs for like three weeks. I just I had to get out. It was not my thing. But uh, the geocaching, 
people will do these geocache and uh, the Pokemon Go. They're sort of the same thing, right? Oh, yeah. All going on these little adventures. And I'll never forget when we were living in Brandon, someone knocked on the door. About two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, I was probably watching a sporting event or something with my dad. And there were these uh, young women at the door and they were giggling and laughing. And there were there's another girl behind the 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 uh, the steering wheel. They were on some sort of scavenger hunt and they were they, they needed like a cup of brown sugar or something as part of this rally or or scavenger hunt that they were on. So we went, got her the, the, the brown sugar and. Sent them on their way. So I don't know if you've ever done one of these goofy scavenger hunts where you've got to ask strangers for stuff and these rallies. I've never done one, but I I, I've always wanted to do one. Super fun. Super fun. Yeah, that's right. A car rally, scavenger hunt. 204-780-6868. Tell us your scavenger hunt story, whether it was part of an organized event or maybe just a personal quest or something that was just driving you insane and you had to find it to find your closure. It is Mackling and McGarry, McNabb's off this week. Before we continue the discussion on the blockade on Brady Road, we have a concert announcement and tickets to give away all week for Boney M featuring Liz Mitchell, Wednesday, November 29th, 2023, 7 p.m. Club Region Event Center. The pre-sale runs Wednesday, July 12th. Password is all capitals. Disco! Tickets officially go on sale Thursday, July 13th via Ticketmaster. We'll give away our first pair of tickets later on this morning. All right. Now we switch gears as the barricades at the Brady Road landfill continue. The MP for Winnipeg Center is calling for more government action following acts of racism in Winnipeg. Leah Gazan released a statement on this ongoing situation with said in part, Families are being abandoned by all levels of government who are failing to treat what Parliament has recognized as a Canada-wide emergency with the urgency it deserves. While the city of Winnipeg focuses on removing protesters, the Premier passes the buck on a search of Prairie Green landfill and the federal government delays. Garbage continues to be dumped on the remains of loved ones. To share more of her thoughts on this decision from the government of Manitoba, MP for Winnipeg Centre, Leah Gazan, joins us now. Thank you for this. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's begin with the announcement made last Thursday by the Premier. Were you surprised by the province's position, Leah? Well, I think it's shocking. I mean, we're talking about the human remains of, of loved ones in a landfill. Uh, the fact that the landfills uh, continue to be used I found the Premier's announcement and the way in which she did it uh, was really callous. But we have to remember, this is somebody's mother and cousin and daughter. Uh, and uh, I, I believe that all levels of government need to do whatever is necessary uh, to, to, to search uh, the, the landfills and to provide the families with justice because what happened to their loved ones was just so violent and unjust. Global News and CJOB have shared video and audio of one interaction between protesters and somebody who emptied debris from the back of their truck onto a mural dedicated to 
murdered and missing indigenous women, girls and 2S plus people. And you have referred to this as a disgusting act of hate, a disgusting display of hate. Yes, and I think it also demonstrates the normalization of violence against indigenous women and girls and diverse gendered people, the kind of normalization that I believe led the premier uh, to make the announcement so flippantly the other day about uh, not uh, searching the landfill, not searching the landfill because of hazards, even though the feasibility a study uh, indicates otherwise. So how do we how do we come to an agreement here, Leah, with regard to what happens next? I mean, in in my view, some of the mistakes we've made over the years is is telling individual stakeholders on different sides of different conversations is this is what we will do and and there will be no conversation. Is is it imperative that there is some sort of agreement amongst the stakeholders, the, those that are most impacted by this, that that whatever is is ultimately decided is as 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 a consensus as possible. I'm trying to pick my words carefully here, but uh, yeah. I want to be you know I want to say it the, the way I, I I feel like that we need uh, some sort of agreement as to, as to what makes sense here. Like if if the if if it's not feasible to search the landfill, and that's the decision that that's made, does it not have to be a, con- a consensus that that comes up with that decision? Well, I think you're right to be careful uh, about words we choose because we can't lose sight of the fact that there's human remains uh, in a landfill that the city and the province continue to choose to throw garbage on. I can't think of anything more violent, uh, as I said before, in terms of the normalization of violence against Indigenous women and girls and diverse gendered folks. I can't think of anything more violent and vile than to continue to choose to throw garbage uh, on on human remains. That's a normalization of violence uh, in my mind. And I think that we all, like if we want to advance reconciliation in this country, we really need to take a pause and we really need to thoughtfully look at how to proceed forward in a way that respects human dignity, the dignity of families, the dignity of communities. And I don't think this is an Indigenous and non-Indigenous issue. In fact, I met uh, with members of a, of a senior's residence, all who were non-Indigenous, all who found it absolutely shocking that we that it's normalized to throw garbage uh, on human remains. We all need to take a pause. We all need to look at options in the way that preserves the dignity of these women that clearly did not uh, have an opportunity to perish in dignity, uh, dignity of the families that's involved, and dignity of our city. How do we want to be seen in the world? You know, this is making international news. How do we want Canada to be seen? How do we want Manitoba and Winnipeg to be seen? I want us to be seen as a place uh, of reconciliation, as a place where we honour our citizens. I think that's up to for debate right now with the with the premier, with the way that the federal government is stalling, and certainly uh, with the city uh, and actions they're currently taking, uh, focusing on the landfill as a top priority rather than, um, you know, retrieving uh, the remains of loved ones should it be possible. 
Leo Gazan is the MP for Winnipeg Centre. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate Thanks it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. It is Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is off this week. We are asking you this morning at 204-780-6868 about a scavenger hunt you went on. And yesterday, Mackling, I kind of had to go on a bit of a scavenger hunt to find the remnants of something we discussed last week. We had Mayor Scott Gillingham on last week for a monthly visit. And among the many things we discussed was uh, graffiti. And I uh, just, I pointed to an example across the Osborne village, br- the, the, the bridge going into Osborne village every day. And I uh, sort of remarked that it, all of the railings, all of the, like the barrier along the sidewalk, just covered in tags, like from start to finish. And I'm walking home yesterday morning and, I'm looking at, I'm on the west side. I'm like, where's the graffiti? And so I, I I just went home and I went back out after for a walk. I had it. I had to walk the length of the west side and then the length of the east side to, to, to see that in the last few days, they've been out there working on it. They finally got to the, on the east side, they've, they've cleaned up half of it. And you can see that they like, they're, I don't know if they painted it or if they blasted it or whatever they do to clean off graffiti. But, uh, you know, there's an example. We we criticize our levels of government for many things. So I just wanted to say right on. Great job. Because you take you you took some action. Yeah, sometimes they do take action. Sometimes the squeaky wheel does get the grease. Um, Yeah. Unfortunately, far too often you have to escalate those requests, point out to people, hey, come on, this looks terrible. It Time does. to do something about it. And I don't know when they did it. I remember, I can't remember what night, but I heard, it, it was definitely at night, and I heard this sudden, like, loud machine out coming from outside, and maybe that's what it was. Maybe they rolled something up and just started blasting away on that graffiti. So anyway, that's great. And then on the subject of scavenger hunts, listener Uliana, <laughs> this is dedication, um, seven years ago when we bought our house, we found a decorative mini metal fence piece at Dollarama that we liked and wanted to paint white to line our new flower bed, but we had to drive around the city to 17 different Dollarama locations to find all the pieces we needed. 17! Dedication to a project. I'll tell you that. 17 different Dollaramas? Liana says we went to locations we didn't even know exist. <laughs> I'm going to say, I want that list. <laughs> I know there are about six on Portage Avenue. <laughs> It's Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by cooperators investing in your future together. And our guest this morning is one of the key cogs in Winnipeg's vaunted defense. When he is in the lineup, he is a genuine difference maker. For the Bombers' defense, four-man rush, pressure from Jeff Coat again, tipped it in the air and incomplete. He's got extra words for Stevens, and it'll be a turnover on downs. Jackson Jeffcoat is back, everybody. Yeah, he's at the top of his game already. Same move he used last time, double hand swipe. That offensive tackle doesn't know what to do about it. Doug Brown and Derek Taylor calling the action from Friday night. And Jackson Jeffcoat joins us now for Breakfast with the Bombers. Jackson, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me on. We always enjoy speaking with you. This defense... Seems to be finding a groove, just 14 points against in the past two games. Will we embarrass you by suggesting that your presence has been the difference? <laughs> well, I, I came in at the right time, I guess. 
What has been the difference in your eyes other than than, than timing on, on your part? Uh, just we're locking back into the details, uh, following kind of what Richie has set up for us, making sure that we're, we're disciplined, not missing assignments, and just making the plays that are, are there for us. Now, Janarian Grant suffered an injury in Friday's win over Calgary. We just want to play some uh, audio here. Uh, this is Coach Michael Shea on how the team manages those player injuries. You check with the player and talk to them and see how they're feeling, and you leave them in the hands of Al Couture, who's the best trainer in the in the league, bar none. And um, the player works very hard, and they get back as, as quickly as they can. What that looks like for Janarian, I don't know yet. You just you put a lot of faith over the years. You put a lot of faith in the players that they're they're going to work extremely hard to get back, and um, also understanding that we're never going to put a player in a position where they're taking the field and put themselves at risk. Sometimes we have to hold players back. So Jackson, I've got two questions for you on that that audio. The first one: Why don't you just tell us a little bit about working with Al Couture? Do you agree with uh, O'Shea's assessment? Best in the league. Yes, he is the best in the league. He he cares. He takes care of us. He makes sure he can do whatever he can within his power to keep us on the field and keep us healthy. And then the second question, have the coaches had to hold you back from getting back on the lineup too soon? Uh, most definitely. I'm always trying to push it and get back. So uh, there's a lot of times where they have to be like, hey, just take your time. Long season. We will get you back, but we want you to be 100 percent healthy because we don't want you back injured. Well, and that's a not only a current day thing and and what's best for the team, putting you using a roster spot on on someone uh, that isn't 100 percent healthy can be a, a dangerous thing. But also long term, is that more of the consideration these days, Jackson? The idea that you know an injury in football, you don't want it to impact you for the rest of your life. For sure. I mean, they do think about our, our long-term health as well. I mean, but that, that, that is more on us as players having to think about what our long-term health, uh, the impact it could be. Um, so we make sure that we talk it over with Al, talk it over with the doctors, and if we do see the doctor, and make sure that we're making the best decision for, for the team and for ourselves. So we know that the, that Blue Bomber locker room is always discussed it's always mentioned that there's a family atmosphere in the dressing room. Can you take us inside a little bit over the last couple of weeks? On one hand, you've had Adam Big Hill dealing with the passing of his father. And then on the other side of the coin, you have teammate Nick Dembski welcomes his first child into the world. How does the group manage all that? For sure, for sure. With Adam, you know, when, when a teammate's hurting and loses a loved one, we hurt as well with them. And so... We're trying to be there with them as much as possible whenever they need being a, being a shoulder to cry on, being just being in their presence or just being somebody to kind of to vent to. Uh, I think that's important. I think it's important to have have brothers on like we do on the team that that you can lean on and talk about things that normally I think men struggle to have conversations about how they feel. And so we're able to do that and talk about how we feel. And then we go out there and, and – and beat up on people together. Uh, and then with Dinsky, I mean, always when you're bringing in, bringing in a life and becoming a father, I think it's special. Uh, you can see just the, the big smile on his face whenever you bring up his daughter and talk about 
him having a child. He's super excited about it, and so are we. Now, when you played dad, when your dad played for the Dallas Cowboys, you're one of the kids running around the dressing room. Did the players here bring their kids into the room? Oh, definitely. That's there's there's a big similarity between when when my dad played and how we were allowed to be around the facility and be around and how it is here in Winnipeg where there's tons of kids around and it's a it's a family atmosphere. Coach encourages us to bring family and bring people to practice and so they can watch and and be involved. What about one of your do you have like any any standout memories of being in the dressing room when you were a kid? Uh, one my dad talked about a lot, and I kind of remember it as well. Is, uh, he would always go send me over to players to talk smack for him. <laughs> so he'd be, oh, go tell, go tell so-and-so this. And so then I was basically playing telephone, going back and forth. <laughs> so you're like the, uh, the original internet. You, you, know, the, you were the direct messenger between your dad and some yeah. of his teammates. That that must be yes, pretty <laughs> that must be pretty special. Now, how has that now so you heard both sides of that, you, the, the action and the reaction. How's that impacted? Like you don't come across to me as a trash talker on the field, but maybe I'm wrong. Are you? I'm not a big trash talker only when somebody speaks to me. Uh I'm I'll be quiet most of the game. I'm not going to just be John at somebody but once you start talking to me you you woke me up. Yeah, I always and found I don't think they want to do that. I I always found I I never liked to talk trash. I've never been a big fan of trash talk, although I I've sort of gained a bit more of an understanding over the years, uh particularly from watching the uh the Fab 5 30 for 30 from when the they have five freshmen for the Michigan Wolverines and getting into the psychology of that. But I always found that yep. if people trash talked me uh, yeah, it was like it was like waking up some sort of a sleeping giant in whatever sport I was playing. So is that what what you feel like? Does it does it give you that extra gear to to fight back even harder? Yeah, it's like like if, if I were, I might have already been like on my A game, but you just set you just put me on another level if you're trash talking me because it's not going to get in my head. It's going to make me lock in even more and get after you. Because I don't like to lose. I can even hear the energy. Feel the change of energy when we change the topic of discussion to trash talk and the whole idea. Have you got? Can you share with us an example where someone made the mistake of saying something to you and and you made them pay? Well, there's been several instances where people have uh, talked smack. I don't want to get into specifics, but talk smack about maybe a play that they thought they knew what was going on. And um, the next play, I'm like, okay, sack. And just look at them. <laughs> Get a sack on them and just look at them. Look. Dang, that's, or, or I got it from Jamal Westerman. Tell him, oh, that's a minus. That's a minus. <laughs> Everybody has grade sheets. Everybody has yeah. grade sheets, so. You already know that. So instead that's of the look, minus. you just walk past them and go, that's a minus. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I love it. Jackson, uh, do, you, do you sense, you know, looking ahead to, to Ottawa, do you sense things are coming together on both sides? Well, in all aspects of the game, Janarian's injury is obviously going to hurt, but uh, Greg McRae is something else, isn't he? Greg McRae is special. We're definitely going to be missing Janarian Grant. He's a... Uh, 
he's a hell of a player. I mean, you don't you don't get guys like him too often. So we will, but it it'll be exciting to see McCray get out there and play. I'm excited for the challenge in Ottawa. I mean, I think sad for Mazzoli. I hear nothing but good things about him, but I, th- I, th- I still think they have a good team out there and that they, they present a good challenge. Jackson Jeffcoat joining us live on 680 CJOB for Breakfast with the Bombers. Jackson, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us this morning, sir. We appreciate it. Man, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. And the Blue Bombers podcast, by the way, new edition, shall be available at some point this afternoon, Mr. That's my Ruffin. understanding. going to do my best to get my part done in a timely fashion today. So then I will leave it in the hands of the one, the only, the producer extraordinaire, Kyle Milroy, to put it all together for you. Yeah, we want. I want to see the Blue Bombers. But no, no, no offense to uh, Mr. Cameron Poitras and uh, Mr. Jim Toth, but the Blue Bombers podcast was at the top. And then Jets at noon suddenly vaulted ahead. Can't have that. Especially not during Bombers. Season. Yeah, yeah. We've got to fix that. We've got to fix that. And, start, uh, and, 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 and I'm just trying to create an in-house rivalry. Oh, rivalries are great. They're the best thing about sport. So I don't mind that whatsoever. I'm going to visit with a, a gentleman from British Columbia who just visited all nine CFL stadiums. In fact, he came to Winnipeg twice. Oh, nice. That's right. Yeah, 15 days. He saw nine stadiums in 15 days, and he was at the Home Run Derby in Seattle last night. Really? Yeah, so we'll catch up with him for the podcast and uh, probably bring you some of that audio tomorrow morning on the start. And by the way, some of the something rather special happened in the Derby, I understand. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. of the Blue Jays uh, became uh, the, the... How do I put this? Him and his dad now are the only two father-son combination to win the home run derby as Vlad Sr. did it back in 2007 when he was with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim and then Guerrero uh, Jr. as a member of the Blue Jays last night. So they're the only two father-son. They're the only father-son combination to do that. I forgot that was on last night. I always used to like watching the home run derby. He hit over, f- the, but he hit the ball combined seventy-two home runs. Somebody said it was over five miles when you added up all the all the distances. It was like over five miles worth of home runs. That last were hit night. Last- <laughs> just wow. by Guerrero. Just by Guerrero. Yeah. Holy smoke. 72 times about four hundred feet. I did the math in my head and said, "Yeah, okay, I guess that makes sense." It is Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is off this week, and we just want to get right into this because it's a big update on a story that we were sharing with you yesterday. The parents of a 19-year-old Winnipeg man who was killed in a highway accident say they were stunned to discover that a memorial to their son was mysteriously removed. Ethan Boyer died on October 2019 on the South Perimeter Highway when his car was struck from behind by a semi, forcing it into another large truck. Boyer's mother, Susan Zuck Boyer, and a father, Dana Boyer, said they visited the makeshift memorial, which was based around two of Ethan's hockey sticks in the shape of a cross with a new sign Sunday when it was nowhere to be found. Susan Zuck Boyer joins us now. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, guys. And good morning to you, Dana. Morning, gentlemen. So, Susan, when did you find out that the memorial was safe and sound? Well, to tell you the truth, I had a terrible day yesterday. I came home after work, and I'm lying on the bed with a massive headache. And all of a sudden, Dana's phone rings, and he answers it, and he's 
looking at me and he says, what? And um, he receives a call from uh, the highway, um, Manitoba Highways uh, minister. Uh, so the minister called uh, in person or on the phone and, and chatted with Dana. And Dana can explain that conversation he had with the minister. Um, stunned. <laughs> very happy, but uh, very uh, surprised that he called. That was uh, uh, very nice to hear from him. Uh, and very happy that... Uh, it was all safe and sound. That's, uh, you know, really what boils down is all that matters. Why was the memorial removed in the first place? He mentioned there's a three-year limit, and I'm not sure if... I didn't really get into it with him about, you know, um, if it's um, something that they do all the time. I I was just happy that it was recovered. I kind of... I'll be honest, I kind of brushed over it. I was like, oh, okay, so you guys have it? That's pretty much where I was the end of it. Like, uh, I, I I, didn't know what else to say. I was actually dumbfounded, which a lot of people will be surprised to hear because I talk a lot. <laughs> well, Susan, so where, where, where's the stuff? Where is the memorial? <laughs> well, it's supposed to be sitting at the St. Norbert garage, uh, safe and sound. Um, so I believe, uh, from Dana's conversation that he told me, um, that they will let us know when we can pick it up. And, uh, they offered to reinstate it back in its spot or we could do it. Uh, Dana decided that, you know what, we're going to put it back up because he wanted to add that new sign anyways. Um, I just found it odd that, you know, we actually didn't put it up till October 25, 2020, which really wouldn't be three years till this year. Um, so I'm not sure. And I couldn't find a policy or anything that stated a three years for a roadside memorial for the province. I know the city has a 365 day one. And I know that, that mad Canada has one that they would put out if uh, it was a drunk driver accident and that stays permanent. So I don't know. I, like I said, I, I don't care the, the reason why I'm just so grateful. It wasn't malicious, maliciously taken. It wasn't vandalized. Um, we found it. Thank goodness to you guys at CGOB and all our friends and social media and everyone that came out. I had a girlfriend who walked the ditch. I didn't know that. She went on her own, Shelly, and walked the ditch thinking maybe it was there somewhere. So I just, I'm just so grateful. And um, I, I just, I, I just don't have, have no words anymore. When you mentioned uh, Susan, that you got home with a massive headache, uh, it, would it be safe to surmise that the headache was perhaps caused by, the reaction that that came your way yesterday after uh, the news was revealed. Actually, I had a headache before I got the news revealed. So yeah, so all the all the not sleeping the night before and wondering where it went and just the stress. I mean, and then of course you know it, it, the the grieving never stops for us. Uh, anyone who's lost a child will understand that. So you know you you seem to to mask it and you put it down way in in, in your belly, but surfaces always right there's always something and this kind of just triggers more things right so it just brings it all back right the city of winnipeg dana was was quite cooperative when i reached out yesterday to find out if perhaps it'd been removed by the city Uh, they sent me a google image and right in the google map street view that memorial is visible. So that was very helpful in terms of determining where it was. And as soon as I saw it, I realized, oh, yeah, I can see why this is definitely not a city responsibility and why it would end up being a provincial responsibility. But my question more has to do with the presence of this memorial and the value that it has 
for you, Dana, and then perhaps uh, to the rest of the community? Why do you think that that reminder is important? Well, for us, it's irreplaceable. Uh, the hockey sticks, especially, but even the, the and I just realized looking at the picture, I totally forgot to mention the two hockey pucks that are attached to the post as well. Um, yeah, for, for us, it's a, obviously we don't need a reminder. Um, your kids, anybody with, or kids or dogs, it doesn't matter. Kids has the first thing you think of it, the last thing you think of when you go to sleep, when you wake up or your kids, and this just puts a huge exclamation point behind it. But the the site itself is, as we keep saying, is we just wish people would slow down, especially along that stretch, just, you know, obviously because of what happened, but also f- for safety reasons, because we drive that stretch, as you know, all the time, um, just to go see it. And the amount of people that mm, coming up to the lights are, are, you know, it's 80. Well, I try and do 80. Um, <laughs> people just blow past you at whatever speed and, and you just cringe. You, you, with the the amount of traffic that goes through there, it's so heavy at times that uh, everybody's in such a rush to get absolutely nowhere fast. And, and I just wish people would slow down overall. Um, when it, when traffic's heavy like that, when it's light, I kind of get it. But yeah, we do highways all the time. We drive, uh, I drive a, a lot for my work. We drive to the lake. Um, <clears throat> and it's just, there's just a, so many things that you see could turn into such a mess. And, and change so many lives and, and you're saving 30 seconds, five seconds, especially on the perimeter. I think there's more lights around the perimeter than uh, there is from between here and Regina. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, Susan Zook Boyer and Dana Boyer, thank you for this update. This is great news. Uh, let us know Absolutely. when you get your hands back on this memorial so we can update that as well. Okay. You guys will you get will a picture. For sure. okay. Thank, and thank uh, you very much. Again. Yeah. For all your help. Much appreciated. All right. Dana Boyer and Susan Zook Boyer joining us live on 680 CJOB. It is Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is off this week. We have concert tickets to give away at the end of this segment, so stand by for your cue to call. But right now we want to talk about how Winnipeg police are ramping up their efforts to halt catalytic converter theft with more advertising for a program designed to track car parts across the city. Crime Stoppers. Winnipeg Crime Stoppers is pouring $90,000 into the Save Your Cat program. The money taken from the province's criminal property forfeiture fund will be used for videos, social media campaigns, and billboards dotted across the city with advertising for the program. Global News anchor Lisa Dutton has these details. The issue of stolen catalytic converters is a shrinking problem for Winnipeg, but it's still a problem. Stakeholders, including Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, continue trying to deter thefts of the expensive part with an initiative called Save Your Cat. The program connects car owners with businesses offering to engrave their converter with the last eight digits of their VIN for free while servicing their car. It will also be painted with bright, heat-resistant paint. So although we've seen a 70% drop in the first five months of 2023 compared to 2022, now this is a provincial stat. It still represents almost a million dollars of stolen converters in the province. 
Paul Johnson. That's his voice in that clip. Paul Johnson, past chairperson of Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, joins us now in studio. And that's a startling number, Paul. 70%. It's not often that we hear good news stories when it comes to crime. And I would count this as one. Well, it's definitely a good news story. In fact, the better news stories in Winnipeg were down 80%. So it's, uh, it's, it's a combination, like I say, of, uh, you know, the, the, the police uh, in doing enforcement, getting the people that were buying these things uh, with, you know, just getting the, the message out with our dealers and everything and getting them marked. It's, it's just become, uh, it was a really good way of doing it. And as well, the Scrap Metal Act. It really did deter people from just being able to walk in with all sorts of different catalytic converters and walk away with a pile of cash. So, so how does the, pro- just to sort of remind us or refresh us, how does the, the program work in terms of being able to track these things? Well, with uh, the the eight number, uh, eight number VIN, it's the last eight numbers, and what happens is that can be tracked pretty much anywhere back to that vehicle. Uh, the nice thing is it's become fairly common uh, throughout North America that they're using these last eight numbers, so it can be tracked no matter where that catalytic converter shows up. The high heat paint, the whole idea of that is to, uh, when somebody slides underneath and they see it, it deters them because, well, first of all, it, it's going to make it difficult for them to sell. And as well as they know right away this thing's marked, and they, it increases their chances of being caught and being charged with the theft. So it's like trying to break into a car, even though it's got a club on the steering wheel. Kind of. Time. We'd like to think that way, sure. <laughs> I like that. So why are, these, why are these catalytic converters so popular for theft, and what makes them so valuable, Paul? Well, I mean, you can go online and it's uh, all sorts of different videos where these, these fellows can slide underneath and in under 60 seconds, they've cut that catalytic converter out and they're on their way. Uh, up until now, if they're not marked, they've got no way of identifying them that they are stolen. And secondly, the uh, there's three uh, fairly rare, they call rare metal. Um, it's the plutonium, platinum, and rhodium. And rhodium at one time was several thousands of dollars an ounce. And although it, it's very little bit, they need a lot. And unfortunately, that's a problem. They keep stealing them until they can get them. But they can get $100, $200, $300 for these catalytic converters. Brett mentioned the idea of the club. I had a club on, uh, certainly had one on my convertible for years and uh, one of my trucks. And then the province and MPI brought in that whole um yeah, I know it's a, d- a disabler. The like. electronic disabler, right? <laughs> yeah. That uh, a lot of people were sort of angry about. It's like, why should I have to take three, four hours out of my day to go and, and get this thing installed in my vehicle? we got to go out and catch the guys or the individuals that are responsible for this theft. Agreed. But in the meantime, this is something that, that can be done to deter and to obviously drastically reduce the... Uh, the number of catalytic converters or vehicles in yep. the case of the club or, or these uh, uh, electronic uh, devices to uh, eliminate the possibility of vehicles being stolen overall. Yeah. Well, like I say with this, uh, the whole idea is deterrence. And, um, and the nice thing is it doesn't affect your warranty. You don't see it. I mean, unless you got it up on a hoist, uh, you're not going to see the paint on it. And um, that's, that's probably the biggest part of it. And again, it's free. Like the, as long as you're bringing your car in for other service at any of our 70 dealers, you know, tell them that you'd like this done. And, and as time permitting, which in most cases it is, uh, it takes them less than under two minutes and they can have it marked and engraved. Oh, but that's something that you would need to request. Like, let's say I take my, my car in to a place that that's one of the, the partners that you've got. Right. 
and I don't ask for it, they they wouldn't would would they say? Well, hey, they want, would you want to be a part of this? It's it's they want your permission. I mean, they don't want to start doing work on your vehicle that you didn't ask for. Yeah. So we always tell people, you know, uh, ask for it, and if they know you're asking for it, now you've kind of more or less given them permission to to do it. I know with my own vehicles, I did the same thing. I brought it to one of our partners and. Brought it in. They had my catalytic converter marked. Then they knew me, but I said I wanted it marked with oil change. So it's it's just uh, it's just for them. You know, they have to. It's the way of running business. That's all. Yeah. One of our listeners pointing out, reminding immobilizer is immobilizer. The word that we there were, you go. Yes. We're looking for collectively. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Much appreciated. Uh, so uh, you mentioned the the change with the bylaw with regard to scrap metal bylaw with the city of Winnipeg. How important a piece of the puzzle was that? Well, it's it's actually a provincial bylaw or a provincial act, and what it is, it uh, it if you bring a catalytic converter into a scrap metal dealer, uh, they're required to do. Uh, you have to produce identification, photo ID. They're only allowed to give you a certain amount of cash, a small amount of cash, and then the rest of it's by check. So now, what they can do is basically they've identified the people that are bringing these catalytic converters in. So I mean, anybody who's coming in with you know ten or twenty a week, they're going to wonder who the heck this guy is. And uh, the police are checking these scrap metal dealers to uh, check. And that's part of the act is that they can go in any time and inspect these records. So. I know when I take my scrap metal to the place that I take it, I have to have an account there. I have to show them my driver's license. Was that not the case at all scrap metal dealers? Well, unfortunately, um, I think with some of the catalytic converters, and I'm not, again, uh, scrap metal recycling, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. I'm not, uh, not knocking it, but I think certain... So recycling places weren't actually following all the rules. Honestly, after this happened, I had people phone me and say, okay, what do we do? Uh, we want to make sure that we comply. So, I mean, the majority, you know, I think the majority of scrap metal dealers are totally legitimate. They don't want these stolen things because the last thing they want to do is they're businessmen. They don't want to jeopardize their business. And there's enough legitimate recycling out there that they don't have to worry about these guys. But unfortunately, there's always people that want to make an extra buck. And those are the guys that aren't the legitimate recycling places. Why is this issue so important for Winnipeg Crime Stoppers? Well, for us, we don't want to be complacent. Uh, you know, we're looking at, uh, we passed this program on to, to BC, Alberta, New Brunswick. I've actually spoken to people right across North America. And the thing is, we're seeing huge numbers all around us. And what my concern is, is that we don't um, become complacent saying, oh, we're okay. And all of a sudden, these numbers increase. Like, you know, from the year before 2022, we're at about $4.5 million in converters being stolen. Right now, we're at a $1 million the first six months. So, I mean, we are making a difference. Uh, but again, we don't want to be complacent. And I think by jumping on top of it now, it, and hopefully it'll save people a lot of money. I mean, you get yours, complete, you know, you get it stolen, it's going to cost you probably on an average $800 to $1,000 out of your pocket. And uh, really, for an, an unnecessary Repair is what it comes down to. Three text messages here very quickly. One comment, two questions. Uh, my mechanic wrapped our new catalytic converter in airplane cable after <laughs> ours was stolen. Impossible, very difficult to cut through. That's interesting. Mark has a question. Won't they just grind off the numbers? Well, they could, but I mean, let's face it. Uh, criminals don't go to work nine to five. They're lazy. They're trying to make fast money. Uh, they slide underneath and they see a brightly colored uh, catalytic converter with paint and and... and not nice to say. They're just going to go to another one. Sure. So, I mean, they're going to go to one that isn't marked. So, I mean, they, they're looking at the... That was the whole the idea least, with the club, too, right? Exactly. Least path of resistance. They don't want to get caught. 
Okay, and uh, last one for you. Darren wants to know, he has a brand new vehicle, doesn't have any specific servicing that needs to be done. Can he just request this and have this done as a one-off? You know, he can go to the dealers and ask. Some of the dealers will do it. They may charge him a kind of a hoist fee, uh, but that's up to them. But uh, I know there are certain ones that uh, will do it uh, for little or no charge at all. So. Paul Johnson, past chairperson of Winnipeg Crime Stoppers. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. If you want to get in touch, if you want to leave a tip, See something, say something. WinnipegCrimestoppers.org is the website. You can also call 204-786-8477. That's 786-TIPS or 1-800-222-8477. That's 1-800-222-8477. It is Mackling and McGarry. We'll just quickly say we're getting a lot of people weighing in saying they've seen Prime being sold at Costco. They've seen Prime being sold in a few spots. All we can tell you is... What we report, what Global News is reporting, that Health Canada says if you see that drink being sold here, you should report it because it's not being sold legally. Uh, in the meantime, we have bomber tickets to give away for Thursday, July 20th. We're asking you to tell us about a scavenger hunt. We've got a couple here that we can get through, starting with as our runner up, Walter R., a.k.a. Captain Breadman. Back in 1985, I was nine. I just watched the movie The Goonies. My family bought the property next to our house to make our yard bigger. Wow. It was all covered in fresh sod. My mom had an old set of luggage, a piece of luggage that looked like a treasure chest. I had the idea of going to our no-touching dining room and stood on the table and started taking out all the crystals off the chandelier and filling the treasure chest and buried it in the backyard. I made a map with an X on it on one side, the house, the other side, the garage. For the next day, I even burnt the edges to make it look old. The next morning, I got up, ran to the window, looked at the yard. My dad and brother-in-law were putting down fresh new grass. Moments later, I heard my mom screaming about the chandelier. My dad comes running, running in, and I said, it was buried in the backyard. I ran upstairs crying, looked out the window, watching my dad and brother-in-law ripping out all the grass, looking for the treasure. Bravo, sir. Captain Breadman, tough call this morning, but Bruce Hollins is our winner. We read this story already, but we want to share it with you again. Um, and by the way, the, I'm, I'm just wondering, these prime drinks that you're seeing uh, being sold, there are several la- lines of the drinks. I think they've got sports drinks, and I think this energy drink is the one that's uh, causing the consternation. In any case, let's move that aside. Bruce says, on the subject of scavenger hunts, when my kids were young, My wife and I created a license plate scavenger hunt one summer. The object of the scavenger hunt was to see how many different license plates we could find from all of the Canadian provinces and territories and all of the U.S. states. What we never anticipated was how the scavenger hunt would take on a life of its own. We would drive through random parking lots just to see if we could check off some license plates from these different locations. After the summer was complete, we had all of the provinces and territories and about half of the U.S. states. So we decided to keep it going beyond the summer months, and I'm proud to say four and a half years later, we found the final license plate. Can you guess where it was from? Hawaii! We still have that scavenger hunt sheet with all the checked-off license plates, even though it was many years ago that we completed it. It was so much fun, and we all have fond memories of working together to find them all. P.S. We found the Hawaii plate at Assiniboine Park. Hmm. There was lots of speculating on our part as to how the car got from Hawaii to the mainland. Uh, and I'm sure there was also an interesting story of how it ended up in the Assiniboine Park zoos. 
parking lot. Yep. So, Bruce, congrats. You're going to the Bomber game Thursday, July 20th. But right now we want to talk about one of my favorite shows of all time, The Amazing Race Canada. Its latest season airs Tuesday nights at 8. It started just last week. And the first leg of the race, Greg, the, the, the leg was in Winnipeg, but one of the first shots of the, the, the episode was of the host, Russell Manitoba's John Montgomery, on one of the balconies of this building. Yeah, like right outside our reception area. When you walk in, there is an extension of the 30th floor on the other side of the glass. Yeah. And so it would be about maybe four, maybe six feet wide, eight feet wide maximum. And there's a white metal railing that doesn't look like it could hold a piece of cardboard if it was lent against this railing. And John was up there and it was incredible to see not only the fact that John Montgomery is doing what he's doing and doing it so well, but also to be doing it right outside our window here at 201 Portage was just absolutely fantastic. I'd be really curious to know what day of the week they shot that as well, because how did they get how did they get that in without any of us finding out? But anyway, the Winnipeg team this year comprised of friends Ben and Anwar. Ben Chuta is here in studio. Good morning to you, Ben. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And Anwar Ahmed joins us on the phone. Anwar, hello there, sir. How's it going, guys? How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. We're doing great. So, Ben. Well, we know you can't tell us how you did and you can't tell us about stuff that hasn't aired yet and only one episode has aired. But so instead, let me ask you this. What was it like exploring our country this way? You know, being on The Amazing Race and being able to explore Canada, it's a dream come true. I think a lot of people in this country want to see more of it. There's so many logistical challenges. It's expensive and we know we have so much to see and do. And, and being on The Amazing Race is one of the best opportunities to be able to do that. Uh, a lot of the thinking goes out of the way. They pick where you're going and you go to places that you never would have expected ever. So it was truly like a, the, I think, the best way to see the country. So yesterday, Anwar uh, was the home run derby in Seattle. And 22 years ago, my brother and I were in Seattle for the home run der- derby. We'd spent a few days at FanFest uh, for Major League Baseball in anticipation to build up to the All-Star game. And I only tell you this because that was the beginning of our journey together to see all the Major League Baseball parks in one shot. We ultimately had to uh, sort of cut our trip short. But this is this is the question, Anwar. How did you know that, you know, I, I'm brothers with my brother. I've known him for my entire life. How did you know that you and Ben would make quality teammates for the amazing race. You know what? It's interesting you say that because before our trip, we, we kind of went to a trip to Australia and we decided we we're going to start traveling for a couple months prior to auditioning for the show. But I can honestly say to you guys, I don't know if I was that confident before getting on that flight and getting to Australia. Cause you know, me and Ben, it's one thing when you're friends and you're collaborating on fun. It's a whole nother thing when you're collaborating in like a project or deciding on where to go or what to do. And, constantly being in each other's face and i really think that you know some of the stuff that we did on that trip together really kind of started showing light on what we could potentially do on the show um because we did have very very similar upbringings and very very different i knew how we would react under pressure and under adversity and so all i needed to see was a, a little bit of collaboration on a couple of ideas and i think that at kind of cemented the idea for me and that's why i felt so confident in, in ben's abilities uh, to do what he's doing on the show 
And Anwar, how was it for you being a part of that first leg of the race here in Winnipeg? Because I know for me as a viewer, you never know where it's going to start. And to see the Golden Boy was the first thing, I think, uh, when the episode started. And then to see other recognizable landmarks and like, oh, my gosh, they're starting in Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah, when you guys are opening up the show here, how you were reflecting on, you know, John being on that ledge that you stared every day, you could only imagine how me and Ben felt being at the starting line, trying to process everything that we're seeing. Like, are we really on the amazing race right now? And are we really on the Provence Bridge? This is, is, is this a joke? Like, is, someone wake me up. This has got to be a dream. Uh, and then for it to be snowing and absolutely miserable outside, I think that was the only sobering thought of like, yeah, we're, we're definitely in Winnipeg. It, <laughs> it feels like Winnipeg, so uh, we're definitely in Winnipeg. But yeah, it's a surreal moment all around. And to start the leg of the race there couldn't have been uh, a more, I, I like the universe and I like what the universe tells me. And that was one of those signs of like, to start the race there and we're the Winnipeg team, I like, I like our odds. Okay, so Ben, I have to ask you, how did you find out? Where were you when you found out? that you were going to be on the amazing race and more importantly, like what do you think the magic bullet was in terms of your audition? Did you have to send in a tape? Yeah. Yeah. So we, 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 so Anwar was actually in Bali, Indonesia, and I was in Vietnam. I just finished like a motorcycle trip around the, the mountains. And then we, we got the call and they let us know that we were going to be on the amazing race. And so we were already traveling for a few months together and we had to stop traveling to come back home to continue traveling. So it was a pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing segue. Uh, and, and you know what? The, the audition, we, we, um, we filmed it while we were on a hike in Australia in the beautiful Blue Mountains that they have just outside of Sydney. And so that video, I think just the surroundings we were in, it was so motivating, it was so inspiring, and we were really wanting to get onto the show. And so we probably made the best video we could have ever made in our lives. Yeah. Well, and Anwar, one of the reasons I enjoyed the, uh, the Amazing Race Canada so much in comparison to the American version is just how Canadian it is. And I'm not, I don't say that to try to paint our American counterparts like, you know, the ugly Americans. <laughs> but for example, if, if, uh, if you've been watching the, this show from the first season, you might remember there was a challenge in one episode where everyone was scrambling to get in line for a challenge at a pool or some sort of a, a hot tub. I don't know. But instead of pushing and fighting for a spot... Everyone was saying, oh, sorry, sorry, as they were tripping over each other. So was that your experience? They know that even though you were all fighting to win, you still all had your Canadian manners in check? Yeah, I think that it doesn't matter. I mean, we, me and Ben have traveled like so many different places in the world and it just the Canadianness in us is just, it's, it, you can't take it out of us. It's, uh, I think Winnipeg also has like even more, we're, we're not, we are called friendly, friendly Manitoba for a reason. I think that we're even more friendly, but you definitely feel it on the show. You definitely feel it within the contestants, but uh, that's not to say that, you know, the, the Canadianness might get dropped if there's a bigger prize on the line. So, well, uh, you'll have to tune in to find out if that, that stays true. Ben, it sounds like you've done a lot of traveling. So walk us through, how have you managed to do this? You, you were traveling, you mentioned Australia, Vietnam. Yeah. Is this part of a larger tour that you've been on? And, and tell us, how are you able to do this? Did you win a lottery? <laughs> What's the deal? Well, my, my life, I've, I've always prioritized traveling. So, you know, in university, I did two exchanges. One was in Hungary, one was in Mexico. So I was gone for six months each time. Graduated university, backpacked around Europe for, for a couple of months. And then I was like, you know what? I need an international business job. And I ended up finding one where I was selling luxury movie theater seats. 
and like the ones you would see at Grand Park. Yeah. And I did that for about six years. And my, I was, I ran the global division. So I traveled across the whole world. Like I'd be in Brazil, Dubai, Hong Kong, Miami, and I would sell these chairs. And so I was on the road every other week, traveled the entire, like everywhere. And when I, during COVID, the industry went downhill. And so I realized like, you know what, maybe I should take a break and I'll just do some traveling. It was supposed to be a year. It turned into two years. I went to, altogether, I've been to 52 countries, but in that two years, I went to 25 countries. I spent two months in Paris, two months in Medellin, Colombia, two months in Australia with Anwar. And so it was just two-year trip. I was like, you know what? It's a great opportunity. You know, I saved up a lot of money. It was a great time to, you know, before I potentially have a family. Uh, the Amazing Race made it clear that we're both single. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, yeah, it was an opportunity to to travel the world and get some more experiences. And then I'm like, you know what? Traveling around the world with Anwar, it was like we were in the regular season. You know, we had our regular season matches across different different teams. And, and then the Amazing Race Canada is like the playoffs. Like, let's put it all to the test. What did we learn on on the road? What did we learn, you know, amongst different cultures and different people and different identities. And so we realized that we would be a solid team. And so it, it worked out perfect. Wow. Ben and Anwar from the Amazing Race Canada are here. And I got to sneak this in before we let you guys go. But Anwar, what, let's talk about your clothes on the show because you're sporting some gear, at least in that first episode, from local apparel company Zwike, who uh, Brian and Ogo from Zwike are good friends of ours. And we have them on the show regularly. And I have like, I think half my wardrobe is from those guys, but I was surprised to see their logos on display on camera because most of the clothes worn on the amazing race. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of them are either blank or they're nondescript. So how did you, how did you sneak away with that? Yeah, honestly, with the, with the support of the amazing race, I think it was one of our ideas. We wanted to, you know, showcase, uh, you know, a black owned business, a local black owned business. And I think that the, the synergy of who we represent as a team, our story and what Zuike represents was, it was, it was a pretty good marriage. And I think that we would wanted to kind of showcase that. And, uh, you know, we kind of just told the amazing race this is what our idea was. And honestly, they were pretty, they're pretty helpful in that manner. They said that, you know, they would, um, allow us to wear it on the show as long as, you know, it was more subtle and it wasn't just looking like a ad campaign. And we, we found some clothes that worked and um, we were able to kind of build a message with the inspire, the believe in the equality shirts um, that, that, that we wore uh, and we were able to kind of, kind of, kind of make it all work. So yeah, shout out to Zuike. Uh, we didn't do very much lounging. Uh, there was very little lounging everywhere. <laughs> down on the show, but uh, we, were, we were able to rock the apparel and it was, uh, it was, it was awesome. Well, Ben and Anwar from the amazing race Canada, the Winnipeg team, you guys got some shoes to fill. The first the first winners were the the Hags, right? The Tim and Tim. That's right. Then last year's uh, winner, Catherine Rutherford, right? Also oh, from yes. Winnipeg. So yeah. I guess they I guess they were bound to start here at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, no pressure, guys. You know, but tune in tonight at eight p.m. on CTV. All right, Ben and Anwar joining us live on six eighty CJOB. Anwar, thank you very much for joining us, sir. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. And Ben, thanks for coming to visit us in studio. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Tuesdays at 8, The Amazing Race Canada.